Welcome to this week's edition of the Interpreter Podcast. I'm your host, Professor Matt Shinkevich of Boston College, and I'm joined, as always, by the managing editor of the Interpreter Magazine, James Miller. Good afternoon, James. Good afternoon, Matt. Uh, before we get into today's content, I think it's worth noting that uh, the Interpreter uh, website, the general website on which uh, this podcast is hosted, uh, is now uh, under a different affiliation than it was uh, in 2015 and before. Uh, correct, James? Yes, that is correct. We are now brought to you by Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty. Right. So that is uh, that's the host of, of uh, the webpage uh, uh, that we are we are located on here in this podcast. We are not, uh, at least in terms of running this podcast, we are not employees of Radio Free Europe or Radio Liberty. Uh, they're not uh, paying for this, just to be clear. But we are affiliated via the website uh, one way or another. Does that sound more or less accurate, Jim? Yeah, that is that is more or less accurate. So um, we are currently, uh, I guess, uh, soliciting new funding for our, uh, our podcast. <laughs> it is true. We had funding, which no longer, uh, no longer is the case. So if you, uh, if you have any ideas, uh, we don't cost much, but, uh, you know, send us a, send us a, a, a tweet at Miller Mead, uh, at Miller Mina, M-I-L-L-E-R, M-E-N-A for Jim, or at Media Studied for me, uh, if you have any, any uh, bright ideas about uh, funding sources. We'll come up with something, I'm sure, and in the meantime, we'll stick with you. Uh, we're going to have a guest on, an excellent guest coming up shortly, but first let's do a little news roundup. Um, we are recording this on January 7th, uh, which is Christmas in Russia and Ukraine, it right? It is. Merry Christmas, everyone. Do you know how to say that in Russian, Jim? Uh, nope. No. Merry Christmas in Russian. Um, so I assume uh, if it's Christmas in Ukraine, Christmas in Russia, it must be calm and cheerful? Uh, nope. Um, actually, Ukraine is seeing a tremendous amount of shelling in the last uh, 24 hours. So an uptick, an uptick in, in violence in Ukraine, uh, which is definitely not uh, in the Christmas spirit, I don't think. Um, the markets are, uh, picked a very good day to be closed. Um, the the worldwide financial markets are taking uh, quite the beating. Uh, oil is also down. Well, actually, I don't know about today, but oil has been down all week. Um, and as you may or may not know, oil is very closely tied to the Russian economy. So uh, the Russian economy has been taking it right on the chin. And uh, yeah, and, and according to your reporting, the, uh, the Russian government tends uh, to uh, look for a distraction when oil drops in particular in terms of uh, uh, getting the eye off of the, uh, the precarious state of the economy given how dependent it is on oil exporting. Yeah, I, th I think that's fair. I think that, um, you know, what you see uh, is that when the ruble is low, when the Russian economy is hurting, you see the, uh, the Russian government act up uh, abroad. And, uh, and right now, actually, they, don't, uh, they can just sort of sit by and watch it happen um, because Saudi Arabia and Iran are stirring the international pot um, at the moment. So... Um, uh, you know, they've had uh, significant disagreements over the uh, Saudi execution of a prominent Shia cleric. Mm. Um, and uh, Iranian uh, protesters then burned the uh, Saudi Arabian embassy. Um, it's worth noting that at least much of the analysis around uh, the, the, the uh, 
execution of the Shia leader has focused on sort of Saudi Arabia playing a very similar game uh, to what you accused Russia of doing with regards to the economy. Right, so Saudi Arabia is having trouble militarily in Yemen. Uh, oil is you know, uh, hurting their economic prospects uh, and sort of inciting uh, a sectarian uh, battle in the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia where you have a, a small Shia minority and a large Sunni majority. Uh, the idea of sort of uh, poking at that Shia minority can actually help consolidate the regime's power with regards to the Sunni uh, population. Yeah, um, I mean, look, there's plenty of reasons that, um, that, that Saudi Arabia is doing this right now. I think, um, you know, part of what's happened is that Saudi Arabia, that is so used to being a close U.S. ally um, and, a, and sort of a, an important geopolitical figure, um, you know, in some ways has been cut out um, of the narrative by the United States um, uh, in the sense that the United States is partnering with Iran on the nuclear program. Mm. Um, you know, Iran is now playing a role in the Syrian crisis in a major way. Right. And, uh, and Saudi Arabia is kind of cut out of the loop a little bit. And, uh, and is, you know, so this is one way to sort of interject itself back into the dialogue. Right. Saudi Arabia is, has, has difficulty entering into the current narrative uh, with regards to America and the Middle East in large part because... Uh, you know they're not going to you know they're not uh, they're not going to be overt with any support uh, for ISIS of course but they're also uh, not interested in doing anything that looks like it's bolstering uh, the Iranian-backed Assad regime. So right now they're sort of stuck. There's hard it's hard to place them in that context. I think that's part of the issue as well. Yeah, for sure. I mean, and and so this is part of what uh, what we will be talking about today is this sort of complicated dynamic. Uh, that's in the Middle East. Um, we will be speaking with uh, David Patrick Karakos, um, author of uh, Nuclear Iran, um, a, a really fantastic book that looks at the Iranian nuclear program from all sorts of different angles, um, including uh, from activists and uh, and inside the regime and uh, and and sort of geopolitical. Uh, players on various sides uh, commenting on the uh, Iranian nuclear issue, um, which of course is is very much uh, in the news right now for a few reasons. First, um, North Korea uh, just tested a nuclear weapon of some sort. Uh, doesn't look like it was an H bomb, right. or, yeah. um, uh, but you know they tested another nuclear weapon. So there again, uh, they've been out of the spotlight. Now they they're back in the spotlight. Um, Iran, uh, in the last several months, has tested a new ballistic missiles uh, platform, um, which uh, has many in the international community concerned. It's That is a violation of a 2010 UN Security Council resolution. Um, Russia has announced that it is sending the S-300 advanced anti-aircraft weapon to uh, Iran, and... Um, and of course, you know, any conversation about uh, sort of uh, Iran making this nuclear deal, uh, you know, we have to talk about Russia's role in negotiating the Iran nuclear deal. And then we have to think about how Russia also negotiated a deal to rid Syria of chemical weapons. And Russia is negotiating, um, you know, the peace in Ukraine that's been so shaky. 
And uh, Russia is, you know, now at, at, at the sort of head of the negotiating table uh, as far as a political solution in Syria goes. So all of these issues are sort of related uh, because they have to do with sort of Iran or they have to do with Russia sort of mitigating um, and, and navigating and, and, and negotiating uh, these complex geopolitical issues, many of them centered in the Middle East. Okay, let's actually bring David on now. I'd like to welcome to the program David Petrokarakos. Uh, David, where are you coming to us from? I'm coming to you from Los Angeles, which is not so sunny today. Uh, it's got to be. Well, we, we are sitting here uh, together in, uh, in Providence, Rhode Island. I bet you've got, uh, you've got a better, better weather situation just the same. So David is uh, an author and journalist. Uh, he's the author of the book Nuclear Iran, The Birth of an Atomic State, uh, and a journalist writing for basically uh, any, any major reputable uh, news institution you might find he seems to have a line on, so I won't bother to list them. But Yep, that's the size of it. <laughs> that's right. Rather impressive, uh, rather impressive uh, journalistic record. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Sure. Uh, and uh, so one of your, one of your uh, areas of expertise, uh, as, as your book title suggests, uh, is uh, nuclear, nuclear weaponry. Uh, and of course, that's been in the news uh, sort of broadly with, uh, with the focus on, on North Korea. But you recently published an article on, uh, at the UK magazine, The Prospect, uh, talking about uh, the relationship between uh, nuclear weaponry and uh, Russia's current Place in geopolitics, uh, and so let's uh, let's start with that. You you sort of describe in this article, which we'll post to the show notes, uh, that there are a couple of ways in which the current situation in Russia uh, could. In, in the worst case scenario, d devolve into a, a nuclear conflict. Uh, one being sort of just the growing arms race that you identify between Russia and uh, NATO or, or the U.S., depending on how you look at it, and also just the tremendous amount of loose nuclear material that seems to be floating around on the black market in Russia. Uh, so can you give us a, an insight? How imminent a situation, how, how scared should we be about, uh, about a growing nuclear threat uh, with regards to Russia? Well, I mean, look... Um what is clear is that Putin has made veiled and not so veiled nuclear threats towards various states, Finland, Sweden, uh, Poland, etc. Um, I think these should be taken with a pinch of salt because I don't think Putin has gone crazy just yet. I mean, not totally crazy, but certainly the rhetoric is there. Uh, and uh, what Putin is doing is he started... Um, in the early stages of a long-term discussion to build, rebuild Russia's Cold War arsenal at a cost of around a trillion dollars. Now, depending on who's in the White House, I mean, you would have thought that the U.S. would have to match this uh, to some degree. I don't think, you know, Moscow's going to start lobbing nukes at people. But I'd say that um, we're at probably a more precarious position than we have been for a long time, since probably the Cold War now. What do you uh, what do you ascribe the, this sort of uh, bellicose threatening rhetoric of Putin with regards to uh, Norway and, and other countries? Why why do that? Why why well, is he? It's, it's just it? part of this you know revanchist Russia guided by this neo neo Eurasianism, this expansionist idea. What do you uh, mean by neo neo Eurasianism? Can you define that for us? Sure. I mean, it's essentially an idea that certain countries in a certain sphere are very very similar. So Russian is more similar to Asia than it is to Europe. And um, just like uh, in um, Turkey have neo-Ottomanism, mm -hmm. Russia now seeks to expand its influence. It seeks to take back the parts of Ukraine, parts of Georgia, uh, Transnistria, all these sorts of things. Uh, and perhaps, as we say, yeah, an expansive doctrine that seeks to reclaim some of Russia's lost glory. 
Uh, obviously, this comes from the collapse of the Soviet Union, the great humiliation that Russians felt as a result. Uh, it also comes from the fact that energy prices are very low. The Russian economy has been mismanaged pathologically mm. for many years. Uh, and you just need a big, big distraction. And like all, you know, from time immemorial, if you need a distraction for your people and you live in a dictatorship or a quasi-dictatorship, you find an enemy, you, like the Ukrainians, the Georgians, the Americans, whoever, uh, the jihadists, and, you know, you, you attack them physically and verbally, and you distract attention from the hills of your own population. And he's been remarkably successful at this so far. If you look at Russian media, if you speak to... When I was in Ukraine, I mean, <clears throat> you have to understand a lot of Ukrainians' families are split with Russians and Ukrainians, and the amount of people, Ukrainians, who say, I no longer speak to my relatives in Russia, because they believe that Ukraine is full of Nazis that want to destroy the speaking of the Russian language and kill ethnic Russians. Mm. It was quite staggering. So I think he's been quite effective at this. And I think the nuclear rhetoric is just one part of this, is one part of an overarching revanchist, expansionist Russia that we're seeing today. Mm. And how does that fit into the story of Syria? Is this, is this one big story that includes, uh, includes Syria? Is that a separate piece? How does it fit in? Well, look, I think Syria is a part of it. I think it's Russia flexing its imperial might. Obviously, in Tartus, it does have a base, its only base in the Middle East. So there is a strategic, uh, there is a strategic reason for it to be there. But I think it's, you know, as Ukraine has kind of petered out, it's, uh, it's pushing, pushing the envelope just one, you know, a little bit further, to be honest. I mean, Assad is, is Russia's only real Middle East ally. So as I say, there is strategic interest and rationale for Russia to be there. But I think that this is part of a continuing trend that we've seen from Putin's Russia over the past few years. And uh, the other the other threat that you mentioned in this article is just sort of the existence of loose nuclear material that could be uh, sold in the black market, could be picked up by terrorists or paramilitary groups. Uh, is is this something that uh, I guess my question is, uh, given the the control controlled nature of Russia, uh, if these things are out there floating freely, is that because the regime wants them to be out there floating freely, or are they unable to control it? Uh, can you help us get a little context on that? I mean, I don't think, to be honest, that the regime wants nuclear materials to be floating freely, because everybody suffers from that. I mean, if a Chechen separatist gets hold of it, it's a real problem for Russia. Right. If uh, Syrians fighting Russians in Syria get hold of it, it's a real problem for Russia. But, you know, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, obviously a lot of this stuff uh, started spreading around the globe, not just in the former Soviet republics. We saw with Pakistan, the HU Khan network, you know, the stuff is floating around. And what you are seeing is just an increase in the sophistication of terrorist groups, like ISIS is obviously the classic example, which is effectively a quasi-state, which no terrorist entity has ever achieved. So if you do have this material out there, uh, and it is largely controlled. It's not quite the Wild West, but, you know, it is out there. And you do have an organization can, that has serious capabilities. Can you paint the picture of when you say it's out there, it's largely controlled, uh, you know, coming from the outside, it's hard to understand what that means. What, what does that mean? Look, it means that most nuclear materials are accounted for, are held by nation states, but there is a black market. Right. You know, the exact size of it, I'm not sure because it is by its nature secretive. But you've seen that Iran has benefited, benefited from the black market. You've seen North Korea has benefited from the black market. And because we are living in an age where the nation state no longer has primacy over certain areas, such as the acquisition of WMDs, when you are seeing terror states emerge, it is quite possible that a terror state like ISIS could benefit in the same way that Iran and North Korea did. Now, uh... 
David, I want I want to talk about your book for a minute. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, I was struck in in your book, uh, Nuclear Iran. Uh, I was struck by sort of there's a delicate balance here because you talk about um, how there is an overwhelming sentiment, um, even amongst, say, the the political opposition to the political hardliners in Iran, um, Iranians want a nuclear program. And um, but not necessarily a nuclear weapons program, but they want some sort of nuclear program. It's almost like as a sign of, uh, oh, I don't know, what prestige. It's prestige. Prestige nationalism, yeah, yeah. right? Um, you know, reasserting. Um, you know, I've I've done a lot of work on uh, on Iran, and I have a good friend who's uh, who's Iranian who worked closely with the uh, the opposition in. Uh, in, in 2009 and 2010, and I remember a somewhat comical exchange between these two Iranians where um, this activist um, had, uh, I, I forget what exactly, but the, the, the meme, the sort of title of the, their uh, social media profile was about the Persian Empire. And, yeah. uh, and my friend says, yeah, yeah, but what has Iran done in the last thousand years? Um, and, and yeah. so there's a sense that like, you know, that, that, you know, the Persian empire, um, the Persian identify identity is very, very strong. And that, um, you know, in, in many ways, the Iranian people feel disenfranchised, right? So they want this nuclear program. Um, and I think, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but you argue that that's one reason why a deal ultimately had to be reached with Iran, um, but but that you also sort of point out, and this is where the tension is, that there are obviously people in Iran, uh, the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps, or people in the government that, that very much want to develop a nuclear weapons program. Um, and so that's where the tension is. Maybe can you speak to this a little bit more? Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> the one thing to remember about Iran's nuclear program is that it started in the 1950s, and one thing it has not been is a linear program with concrete goals, you know, they haven't started at the start line and then just raced straight forward to the finish line. You know, it's changed under the Shah, then the Shah was overthrown and it was scaled back and abandoned by the Islamic Republic, then it was restarted. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's been a, quite frank, I mean, you're talking about a program that, you know, wanted to build a nuclear reactor in uh, 1979 that's still not working, the Bushesh reactor that's still 36 years later, and God knows how many billions of dollars later that's being built by Russia, still hasn't come online. So in many ways, the program is a disaster. Um, I mean, under the Shah, you know, I spoke to the founder of the nuclear program, Akbar Etemad, who founded the Iranian Atomic Energy Organization uh, uh, Agency. And, you know, he said, he asked the Shah, you know, do you want weapons? And the Shah said, look, at the moment we have... uh, conventional weapons advantage in the Middle East, if we go for nuclear weapons, other states will do so and that will neutralize our advantage. But if anything changes in the Middle East and we see other countries doing for it, then they will absolutely go for it. So I think there has always been this tension here in that 
if you listen to the way the Iranians talk about their nuclear program, they talk about, oh, it shows we are very intelligent people, we are great scientists, we are pioneers in the nuclear field, blah, blah, blah. But sitting alongside that, quite obviously, is um, a country that, you know, was attacked by Iraq uh, as soon as uh, the Islamic Republic was, was founded, was the victim of WMDs. You know, I mean, the idea that the Iranians haven't seriously thought about building a nuclear bomb is absurd, you know. As we saw from the AQ Khan um, network, where it got, where it basically got the basis of its centrifuge program. So, you know, I always said that, you know, Iran, I think, wants or has always had the goal in mind to have the capability to build a nuclear bomb rather than actually building a nuclear bomb. Because if you build a nuclear bomb, you do become North Korea now. Right. And Iran is not North Korea. You know, this is a nation of. 5,000 years of history, you know, doesn't like isolation. Iran wants more engagement, wants not less. It wants to be a regional player. It wants to be a power broker. It wants to be involved in Syria, as we know, we see it's doing. Iran also, David, if, uh, I mean, to jump in, Iran also has other things to offer the world, right? In, ter in terms of uh, resources, uh, strategic location, uh, the population as a potential workforce, and so on and, and so forth. Uh, whereas North Korea doesn't seem to. Is that no. part of what, what, the, what the dynamic is? Yeah. Well, look, I mean, to put it bluntly, Iran is a serious country. Yeah? It's a proper country. Right. North Korea is, I mean, Iran is not a pleasant uh, democracy, but North Korea is essentially a walled-up slave state. Right. Well, people uh, often ask, you know, what does North Korea want? And it seems, you know, what it, from my sort of outside perspective, it seems what it wants is to have something to negotiate with, to have something to right. offer, even if all that is is to, to you know, create something and then, and then you know, halt it in terms of uh, yeah. uh, nuclear weaponry. That, that's not at all the case for Iran. No, although, I mean, you know, as you've seen, its sort of game of brinkmanship has provided it with serious uh, bargaining power. Right, you know, no, it works. It's a serious uh, uh, political bargaining chip. Absolutely. Iran has played it very effectively. You have to, if you've looked at the, nego the nuclear negotiations since 2002, when the nuclear crisis first started, I would say Iran has been more or less a clear winner. And uh, you know now we're what, a few months into into the uh, the agreement, uh, the, the Iranian nuclear agreement. What what is just your general sense of where it's at and what what we've learned so far? Well, look, I was for the deal for the simple reason that the option for you know uh, the alternative to a deal was not a better deal. It was no deal. Right. Um, and politics is the art of the possible. Um, you know, people say, oh, well, we, we should have just redoubled the sanctions and blah, blah, blah. But Iran is very, very good at just hunkering down, you know, in the face of huge isolation and just plowing onwards. It did it for eight years during the Iran-Iraq war when it was essentially isolated. And the U.S. tacitly, tacitly uh, supported Saddam. So I think that's what we would have seen in Iran would have just gone all out for a bomb. And I think that would have been a disaster. The... Interesting thing about the deal, and I wrote about this recently, it's not out yet, is the law of unintended consequences. Now, what has happened within Iran is always, and I'm simplifying here, is you have this ongoing uh, dialectic or, you know, argument between hardliners and quote-unquote reformists. When I say reformists, I do mean within the context, context of the Islamic Republic. I don't mean... These are not people who are campaigning for gay marriage, right? right I mean, it's right. within the context of, of Iran. Um, now, what happened was, is that, the, you know, when the Shah was overthrown, Mohammad Reza Pahlavi, by the Islamic Revolution, by the Ayatollah Khomeini in 1979, one of the big accusations leveled against him was that he was a lapdog, lapdog of the West, particularly the Great Satan, which is the United States. So in many ways, uh, the... 
ideological basis of the Islamic Republic is, is defiance in the face of imperialism, as they call it, defiance against the great Satan, standing up to the great Satan. Right. Now, this presents Khamenei, who's a hardliner and instinctively anti-West, with a problem because he desperately needed the sanctions relief. But at the same time, by coming to a deal, he was in effect compromising with the great Satan. But he had to do it, so he allowed Rouhani to make the deal because Iran is in you know, serious economic trouble. So since the deal, what he has done is in order to show that Iran will not kowtow to the West, him and the hard lines around him have redoubled their efforts to show that they may have compromised, but the Islamic Republic will remain the same. And in a sense, the Islamic Republic has returned, is returning to its most egregious self. So you've seen the spate of arrests of dual uh, Iranian U.S. nationals which is sending a clear message to the U.S. and to reformers. And that is, we are not weak. Okay, we may have compromised, but we're going to be even tougher than we were before. So you have the slightly paradoxical situation where you have a more opened-up Iran that's more open to the global economy, but the people running it are more hardline than ever before because they feel the need to prove that they have not become weak and they have not compromised their fundamental ideals. Yeah, so this is where, um, you know, to, to, to bring the, uh, the, the conversation back to, uh, back to our bread and butter, Russia. Yeah. Uh, so what's interesting to me is that, um, you know, I was, uh, I, I, like yourself, was cautiously um, you know, um, I, I guess cautiously advocating for, um, for a deal with Iran. I think I was a little bit more skeptical than you perhaps, but, um, but, uh, but only a little bit. Um, but what I noticed was that right away, almost predictably, um, Russia stepped in and said that, uh, and, and did some things that I think jeopardized the, 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 the inevitability, or, or it's, I guess it's no longer inevitability that this that this deal will will actually be passed by U.S. Congress and then will we'll become a reality. Um, so, of course, one of the the segments of this deal, right, is that um, Russia would be playing a, a leading role in uh, in working with Iran to dispose its, of some of its nuclear material and in working with the international community to ensure that, uh, you know, that Iran was pursuing a peaceful nuclear program. Mm -hmm. um, but right away, uh, Russia announced that it was delivering uh, an S-300 anti-aircraft system, um, which is one of the most advanced anti-aircraft systems in the world, mm -hmm. um, to Iran. Um, yeah. which would jeopardize the enforcement part, right? Reagan said, uh, trust but verify, right? Yeah. So, um, you know, this would jeopardize, you know, if Iran moved forward with its nuclear program, uh, with a nuclear weapons program, right? Yeah. Um, well, we could bomb it, but it becomes much harder to bomb it if, uh, if an S-300 is, is present. And then more recently, you have uh, Iran testing uh, ballistic missiles and yeah. just just yesterday released a video of um, or two days ago maybe um, of a underground missile storage facility right so this yeah. sort of goes into what you were saying about um, ab about you know the Iran hardliners sort of proving to the world that no we're you know we're still strong we haven't we haven't given in right but yeah. but Russia is also playing that same line aren't they to a degree, I mean, look, I personally don't think that Russia has any interest in seeing a nuclear Iran. It's just a question of priorities. Um, you know, the United States has meddled in what is probably Russia's top priority, which is Ukraine, its backyard. 
So I think Russia, frankly, is meddling with what is the, you know, the US's top foreign policy priority, you know, stopping a nuclear Iran. I just think it's pretty much simple tit for tat. I mean, if you were to ask Russia, do you want to see a nuclear Iran? I think they'd say no. But I mean, on their list of priorities, it's probably about 10th. You know, with the US for the last five years, it's been number one. So I think that, you know, it's Russia just stirring stuff up, making life more difficult for the West. Well, Russia certainly likes to make life more difficult to, for the West recently, doesn't it? Absolutely. I mean, I think this behavior is entirely in keeping with everything else. I'm not sure. Have they been delivered yet? That is one thing that I uh, would... Uh, this, is up for, this is up for debate. Um, but yeah. both Iran and, uh, and Russia now say that the uh, delivery has started and that the missiles have been... The S-300 missiles have been paid for. So... Yeah. Yeah, I have been following this for a long time. I, I'll, I'll, I'll wait, I'll hold off and see until it actually happens. Uh, David, I, I, I do know we're coming up against your time limit here. Okay. Um, can I, can I, can, uh, just from an outside perspective, you, you're, you're in L.A. right now, but you've been around the world. Can you give us a quick bit of insight into how do you find uh, people around the world are looking at the current uh, presidential political situation in the United States, uh, the, particularly with the, the man who we... we, we <laughs> choose not to name here yeah well I mean with a mixture of horror and an inability to sort of you know withdraw their eyes from him it's like watching a car crash um, look I mean you know on a far lesser scale and on the opposite side of the political spectrum we had our own version of Trump in Jeremy Corbyn mm -hmm. I wrote an article on, on Corbyn and you know also Trump as well by proxy and I think you know, I think people are horrified uh, and worried, um, but I think that in a way it's almost inevitable. I mean, over the last few years, you've had this, you know, almost consequential, almost subsequent, you know, loss of faith in institutions. Like, for example, in Britain, we had uh, the uh, expenses scandal when MPs were pretty much on the take with their expenses. Then in the, the US and Britain, we had the NSA regulations, so you couldn't trust the security services. You had the Iraq war, so you couldn't trust leaders because they lied. Then you had the financial crisis, so you couldn't trust the banks. Uh, and in Britain, we had the phone hacking with the media. You couldn't trust the press. Every single pillar of what is the establishment has, has, has lost credibility. Right. And people now are looking to alternatives because there is no faith. I mean, you know, Trump is the, you know, the classic anti-politician politician. This is his whole shtick. You know, I mean, it's absurd because no one's more of an insider than Donald Trump. But at the same time, this is, you know, this is his, uh, this is his shtick. Uh, so I think Trump is the symptom of overarching trends in the West. And you're seeing it in Hungary with Orban. You're seeing it in France with the rise of Le Front National and Marine Le Pen, where people are sick and tired of what they see as elitist politicians that are out of touch with the ordinary person. Uh, demographic changes, you know, uh, Trump supporters, as they say, are generally white males without college degrees. They believe that you know demographics are changing, that they're under threat, that their country that is they don't know they no longer recognise it. I mean, it's all a very toxic mix, and it's all very worrying. And it's very worrying because it's not confined to America; it's confined to Western. You know, it's 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 in Western Europe as well. And I think that um, you know we're entering a new era of politics, frankly. I don't think Trump in the end will get the nomination. But to a degree, it doesn't really matter whether he does or not. Uh, well, it does for America. Well, sure. exactly. it certainly does matter. <laughs> yeah, we, we disagree with yeah. you on this point, David. <laughs> well, no, okay. I mean, 
if he doesn't get it, put it this way, it doesn't matter so much in the sense that what he has done anyway well, so far. Is, so has the damage been done? I mean, that, that I guess, yeah. is... I mean, it's so bad. I mean, uh, I mean but at I this point... Uh, continue, I'm sorry. No, what I was going to say, look, is what I find interesting about Trump is... Uh, I want to write something on this, is... Um, Look, demagogues are nothing new, especially for us in Europe. Uh, I mean, Britain, not so much. We've always resisted them. But, I mean, in continental Europe, demagogues are a dime a dozen. What I have been in history, I mean, you know, you look at, obviously, the outbreak, you know, the years before the Second World War. What I find so interesting about Trump is that he's he's a clown. And I said this to people, and they go, oh, no, no, he's a clown. He's, he's not a clown. He's very serious. He's very dangerous. I agree 100%. I'm not saying, I'm not dismissing the threat he poses, but he's, he's a clown. He looks like a Dorito. He, you know, <laughs> I mean, Jean-Marie Le Pen, Marine Le Pen's father, uh -huh. okay, he would say the Holocaust is a detail of history. He wouldn't come out and say, I'm so handsome. I, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm the best deal maker in the world. I mean, these are clownish statements. Yeah. I mean, I mean the things he says, uh, I'm not talking about the horrible things. I'm not talking about the wall and the Mexicans are rapists and all this nasty stuff, but the this, this, this simply buffoonish things yeah. that he says. Now, David, you you were in the room with me, correct? In uh, in Ukraine when Donald Trump uh, spoke via satellite. Yeah, it was a disaster. You tell, tell me, uh, let's uh, tell me from your point of view what happened. Set the scene, also, just for for listeners who haven't heard. Fine. Well, we were at a conference organized by Viktor Pinchuk uh, on Ukraine's future. It was a very glitzy affair. Elton John was there, and so Donald Trump. Elton John was live. Elton John he, yeah, spoke. Yeah. He didn't yeah, he was play. There. Uh, what? He was. Yeah. He was a. What a he disappointment. Was, he was. Uh, he was there to advocate um, gay gay rights. Well, there's nothing wrong with rights. that. But he told me that that Elton John appears at a at a banquet or whatever. I I want at least a little uh, yellow brick road. Not at all. Nothing. All right. Okay. Well, that's a disappointment. But continue. It was. We just had to listen to him give us a lecture instead. Um, yeah. I mean, to be fair to Trump, it wasn't entirely his fault. The sound was completely, uh, completely broken so he just said i'll just keep talking and he just just was just it was the stream of consciousness of an idiot yeah uh, okay. you know he he has no geopolitical understanding and but what which is fine well it's not fine but that's one thing the, but the second thing is that he doesn't care who knows it you know i mean it's like well not knowing the difference between hamas hezbollah or whatever it was well i'll know these things when i need to know them. i mean it's amazing and i wonder if we're looking now at sort of demagogues 2.0 you know fueled by reality TV, you know, I mean, you how can a candidate sit there and say, look, I'm a really handsome guy, and people <laughs> not, laugh, not laugh him out of the room? Well, the you know, when you're somebody who has, who has been with some of the world's top women, as Donald Trump has pronounced, then, then you, yeah. must be, you must be yeah, a good-looking guy. His words, not Matt. No, Don't his words, yeah. yes. He, he's, <laughs> you described it. He's, he's lucky to be with some of the world's top women. If you're getting some of the world's top women, then you, are, you're, you must be very handsome. Would well, you rather hear Elton John give a lecture or Jim sing Yellow Brick Road? I'd have to say Alan's only give a lecture. Yeah, that sounds right to me. That sounds right to me. Uh, I think I think with that, uh, we're going to have to to say goodbye for today. Uh, maybe we'll get you back on again, though. Obviously, you hit on on great. countless issues that we could discuss at at, at a greater length. Uh, so um, we'll we'll put in the show notes all of uh, all of this the the link to your book, the link to some of your recent articles, Thank and you. uh, and your Twitter account. So thanks so much for coming on, David. Thank you very much for inviting me on. Thanks a lot, please. David. Thanks again to David Petrokarakos for coming on and, and speaking with us. That was, uh, that was fantastic, Jim. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Everyone uh, should follow David. He's, uh, he's really 
you know, he's one of those guys who is an expert on a lot of uh, stuff. On a lot of stuff, yeah. you know, yeah. Ron. He did he did really fantastic coverage from Ukraine. Um, you know, he uh, has done really fantastic uh, coverage of the crisis in Greece. Um, you know, he really follows, uh, you know, British politics. Um, you know, he's uh, he's a very knowledgeable uh, guy's great writer. So right, uh, right, he's great. Um, so give him a follow. We'll put the link. Uh, we'll put the link. It's I, I'd spell his name out, but it's kind of tough. So we'll we'll, yeah, do, we'll, that. we'll do that on the uh, on the on the show page. Uh, we've got a quick tr- Twitter question here again at Media Studied or at Miller Mina, uh, and the question it's a tough one to pronounce. I'm not going to try, but the question is: uh, Should Russian propagandists be charged with incitement to violence? What do you think, Jim? Um, so this is, uh, Miroslava's question. Um, so the, a little bit of context here, I think, um, maybe I'm going to put words in Miroslava's mouth. Um, so in Ukraine, there has been a debate about whether or not, um, you know, Russian journalists, uh, Russian state journalists should be allowed to operate, um, should they be arrested, uh, as sort of servants of an invading state, and um, and then there's sort of the bigger question um, in 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 outside Ukraine, which is you know should uh, RT or some of these English language uh, Russian networks should they be on TV? Should they be on cable? Should they be on um, you know whatever? Um, should they be allowed to operate? And um, you know I think Ukraine is in a tough spot. Uh, I think Ukraine is at war. I think they've been at war. I think they've lost a lot of territory. I think they've lost a lot of lives. And I am very much sympathetic to the idea that the Russian state media is fueling that war. Uh, I think if you were Ukraine, you do not give these people visas. I think it's it's that simple. Um, but I, I do not think that you can get into a scenario where you are arresting or, 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 or pursuing legal action for thought. Uh, I think that is a very dangerous, slippery slope. And also, you know, it is easy to forget amidst this war between Ukraine and Russia that is playing out in the Donbass in eastern, eastern Ukraine. D- the Donbass is Ukraine. Um, you know, according to the Crimean government, uh, sorry, according to the Ukrainian government, Crimea is Ukraine. Um, there needs to be a path forward so that if Russia were to give up these territories, if the Ukrainian government were to restore order, um, that the people of the Donbass, no matter which side of the, the crisis that they are on, whether they support the Russians or they support the separatists or not, there needs to be reconciliation. And I think what's happened is that, uh, uh, and I'm not blaming people, but I think there's been a lot of damage done that is going to make it very hard for those two sides to reconcile. Um, and I, and so, so no, I don't think, uh, I don't think Russian propagandists should face, uh, legal action, um, as part of their, uh, you know. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's worth, worth noting that, uh, this question is being directed at two Americans, uh, and in the United States we have, uh, a uniquely strong protection 
of speech, uh, and I think that both Jim and I probably react instinctively quite negatively uh, to the idea of punishing uh, political speech in particular. Part of that has to do with the philosophical leanings. Part of it does have to do with uh, culturally, uh, America has long celebrated uh, allowing people to say things that we we think are quite terrible. Yeah, no, that's right. Now, but if you look at RT, so RT is an interesting example because it uh, RT is included in some cable and satellite packages so it's it's not a matter of um you know it's on the internet everything's on the internet i don't believe in censoring the internet um but uh this is a matter that you know that these organizations are receiving federal funding from the russian federation to broadcast in america um and i think this is a different question you know, these are state propaganda outlets. Uh, I think at this point, RT should just be considered an extension of of the Russian intelligence. Uh, you know, I, I don't think they're quite that neatly controlled. Well, let, let's 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 call this out though. So you're you're saying that it's it's a uh, an aspect of the Russian, uh, you know, state system, right, with yeah. uh, advancing Russia's interests. Uh, it's worth noting that's more or less what Radio Free Europe or Radio Liberty uh, is, which is uh, who is, uh, is uh, you know, funding the, the interpreter. Uh, now, you might, you might think that it's being used for better or worse reasons, but fundamentally it doesn't sound so different the way you describe it. I think fundamentally there are huge differences okay. because um, the, the journalists at – so first of all, I mean, uh, I've been at uh, Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty, I guess, for seven days. <laughs> yeah, right. That's well. That's just... um, but you know, we've actually I've never had a conversation with anyone at RFE about content. Um, when we entered into our agreement, um, you know, of course, they reserved the right to, um, you know, to to take down content for reasons, you know, if it was bad, if it was false, or whatever. Um, but um, you know, but this is just you know we have. Uh, we control our editorial line. Uh, and, and this has always been the case with the interpreter. Um, you know, I've always been able to control the editorial line. But, you know, I think that um, that RFE, you know, it, they have really interesting um, articles that I, I don't think are clearly political. You know, uh, the state is not, the State Department isn't controlling RFERL. You know, there is not daily dialogue between the White House and RFERL about um, the content of the website. Um, and I don't think that's true with RT. I think at this point that RT is just an extension of the Kremlin propaganda arm. And I think that's fair enough, but I do think it's worth acknowledging that for some people that's not going to be where they're going to draw the line. But you've made your case, and that that's fine. I, I simply put it out there because I think somebody listen, listening to it might uh, come to a similar uh, conclusion, but your, your distinction well, makes and sense. Yeah, and, and this is a wider conversation, but, you know, um, some countries have, uh, they have included, um, you know, RT as being funded by the Russian state. They have included that in sanctions. So they have been able to close offices, um, you know, by right. shutting off the funding to those offices. Um, so, you know, is that a different thing? It's certainly not arresting, uh, you know, RT's journalists or something as they attend press conferences or whatever it is, you know, RT, I think has the ability and right to send, uh, you know, state, state funded journalists to, uh, the United States. 
But, you know, that's a different question when you get into broadcasting, some of which is subsidized by the United States, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Well, uh, yeah, that's certainly worth discussing. And perhaps we will do a whole whole show uh, just focused on media, as that's an interest of mine as well. Uh, let's do a quick quick uh, bonus show, lightning bonus round. Bonus show. All right, lightning round bonus show. Uh, it's uh, questions about football. The NFL playoffs start this weekend. Uh, whenever I ask, uh, we, st- we talk about football, I have to caveat that I am ethically uh, ambivalent about rooting for football because it gives people horrible brain diseases. Uh, so first question I'll ask you is, in 20 years, uh, will uh, American high schools still have American football programs? You know, um, lightning round. Five years ago, I would have said, uh, of course. Right. Um, and now I'm just not so sure. I mean, I, I can't say no. But I, I think in 20 years, the Northeast will be playing touch football. Or some like souped up version of touch football. Maybe. The South, I think it's going to take a lot longer and has everything to do uh, with the brain injury issue. Um, all right. That said, now that I've sort of uh, uh, solved my... I had to point out there's an ethical concern. Now let's just have fun uh, with a corporate entity that kills people. Uh, so we've got matchups for uh, this weekend's wild card round. Let's start with the most ethically difficult of this one. Also, uh, we got the Packers versus the Washington Football Team, whose name this is how bad the NFL is. I can't even say the name of the Washington Football Team. Uh, if you are an international uh, listener and you don't know it, then look it up. Uh, that's actually the name of the team that they have on the jerseys. Actually, if you're an international listener, you may not understand. Uh, well, you would understand Washington. Look up Washington NFL team. Look at the name and then Google that name and see what it means. Yeah, it's uh, highly controversial. I'm gonna go with the Packers. I think uh, they're just a better team. Yeah, my my, my wife would, would who who does often listen might well get to this part of the episode. She is from Wisconsin. I'll go with the Packers there. Uh, we'll see we'll see where we disagree. Uh, Seahawks versus Vikings. The the Seahawks are the favorite, but they are also the lower seeded team due to the way that the playoffs work. Uh, I'll go first here and. I think the Seahawks are are strong. They are probably going to be my Super Bowl pick from the NFC. Who do you like? I I actually yeah, I I really like the Seahawks too. But the Vikings are a really good team. I think it's going to Much be improved. quite the game. Yeah, it's going to be a good game. All right, Steelers versus Bengals. Uh, Bengals never win in the playoffs. Who are you going to take? <sighs> yeah, but I hate the Steelers. I gotta go with the Bengals. Man. All right, I'll take I will take the uh, I'll take the Steelers on that one. And uh, we'll have a showdown. Then we have Chiefs versus Texans. Uh, Chiefs are kind of on a roll. Texans are kind of on a roll. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's uh, I think, you know, like uh, a month ago, I would have said Chiefs, no problem. Um, I still got to go with the Chiefs, I think. Um, you know, I'll, I'll go, uh, yeah, no, that's really tough. I, well, to make it interesting, to give you a chance to uh, to beat me here, I will take the Texans based on J.J. Watt being the uh, uh, the best player in football and the best defensive player for a very long time. Uh, but you're, I, I'm, I'm caveating and, and basically hedging saying that I think that you're right, but I will go on the record to the opposite so we have a couple things to root for. Uh, Super Bowl picks. And we could revise these. Uh, I will go first, and I'm going to say it's going to be. Uh, I'm going to get. The, I'm, I'm going to say the Seahawks. I'm going to say the Seahawks versus really? the versus the uh, versus. Uh, you see, I want to say the Patriots. That's my team. I'll say a rematch. Seahawks Patriots. So 
Wow. Okay, so the Seahawks would have to beat the Vikings, which we yep. already determined is going to be a tough game, but we both think the Seahawks are going to And then they'd have to beat the Cardinals, and then they have to beat the Cardinals, Panthers. Yep. who were really good. Uh, very good, yeah. I mean, and then and then they have to beat the Panthers, who I think will yep. easily beat either the Packers or the Redskins. Uh, don't d- d- delete that. Don't say that oh, name. Or the name with the thing. Don't say that. That, that is a terrible name. But that that was the name. We're not gonna we're not gonna take the time to edit it. Don't. I think, but I I gotta think that it's gotta be the Panthers that win the NFC. All right, who do you I like just in the AFC? Gotta think. Uh, the AFC is tough because two months ago I would have said that the Patriots would have gone undefeated. Uh, and that they would have fielded and one of the greatest been an injured mess lately. Greatest teams in the history of the NFL, and there was all kinds of statistics to back me up on on some of this argument. By the way, now they're a mess. So I I want to say the Patriots, and I you know they could do it. So I'm gonna go Patriots Panthers. Uh, so, 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 yeah. Okay. Who did you actually say was going to win the? the oh, Super and Bowl? the I'm going to I'm going to say I'm going to say the Seahawks will win the Super Bowl. I'm gonna I'm gonna show my Your true uh, horrorism. My, my true uh, uh, complete bias when it comes to sports. That's, that's where you're supposed to be biased. And, that's okay to be biased. There. And uh, I gotta go with the Patriots. I gotta go with the Patriots. If they make it that far, if they make it to the Super Bowl, they will win. That is my prediction. Okay, fair enough. Um, let's see. Uh, let's do. Let's do a. Uh, you, you a wanna... Let's do a secret code. If you listen this far through, uh, give a tweet to at Media Studied or at Miller Mina, and the secret code will be Jim. You pick this week. I always pick. Uh, it'll be. Uh, it will be uh, Liberty. Tweet at us, Liberty. And I'll send you a DVD of a, of a documentary that I've made. A good documentary. Yeah, and uh, or a bad one. He's got both. I've got both. I've got I've got the whole gamut. But he's got a, a bunch so, of good I, ones. I'm gonna send you the good one. Uh, I guess if you, there's a few. If you want, if you want a bad one, request. Otherwise, I'll send you a good one. All right. With that, we'll leave you for this week. Thank you for listening to the Interpreter Podcast. Thank you to David Petrokarakos for uh, enlightening us on a number of issues, and we will see you next week. Mm-hmm.